You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Uh, if you have your Bible, I want you to open up to Genesis chapter 1. We're continuing in our summer series this morning called Salt and Light. Everybody say Salt and Light. Salt and Light, Salt and Light, Salt and Light. Um, why would we spend an entire summer's, summer's uh, sermon series on Salt and Light? It's like four verses long. Um, salt and light, salt and light. Salt and light is, is a deep and a wide concept. You could spend a summer on it. You could spend a lifetime on it because it is not just what we have. It's who we are. Like, that's what Jesus says. Is like, we don't just have salt. We are salt. And Annie Sam, Stanley spends probably three times as much time as I spend on sermons 40 hours a week on his me, his we, his he, his you, his us. He, he, he preaches messages. But Jesus says, the best message that I've ever given is a life that's consecrated to me, a life that's different because of me, a life that's in love with me. Like, like we live in a broken world and we're all looking for answers and we're all looking for something that can bring hope and to break through. We all have family and neighborhoods and people that we know are, are, are brokenhearted and hard-hearted and resistant to the Lord. But this is what the Lord is saying when he says, they're gonna see your good deeds and recognize it's not you doing them and recognize your father in heaven. He's saying, you're the best evangelistic apologetic medium that I have in my hand. And where sermons are not going to reach them, you are. Your life is going to reach them. Your life, your past, your present, your future, your, your story, your, your job. Like, like, like I'm going to send Asian pastors down there, and he, they're going to do their best to, to, to try and get an outline down there and preach on Sunday mornings. But, like, that sermon's not going to reach. It's like, it's your life. This is what he's saying. It's the salt and light, and you are the salt and light of the world. A city of a hill, on a hill cannot be hidden. And so that's what this is. Salt and light is a, is a deep prayer. It's like, it's like um, we only export what we import. Like we can only give away what we have. And probably the best way to analyze and assess whether or not we believe and understand the gospel is the way that we treat the people around us because we export what we import. And so the prayer for salt and light is not only a wide prayer, it's a deep prayer. It's a prayer for deep saturation of the gospel in our lives, in our everyday lives, in all of our relationships. And so this is the question, right? Like, this is the question, like, like, like the world has country clubs and has great music and has retreats and has care for the poor. The world has lots, lots of functions that the, that, the church, that the church also has. But what the church has that makes it salty, that makes it different, lest it lose its tastiness, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Are we saturated in the gospel? Are we different because of the gospel? Do we think differently in the gospel? And when people come to us, do we give them the gospel or do we give them something else? Great N.T. Wright says, it's not good advice, it's good news. When people come to us with their marriage problems and their eating disorders and their depression, do we give them advice or do we give them, do we give them good news? When we talk to ourselves and we run into issues, do we try and f- find solutions for the problems that we have in other places with good advice or do we, do we respond and live in the saltiness of the gospel? Foolishness to men, wisdom to God. Do we live imports and exports of the gospel? I remember the first time that the gospel became real to me. Is the gospel real to you today? The gospel gets you in the church. You know, they ask you, like, what do you believe? And you know what you're supposed to say. I believe in the gospel. I mean, we, we know that. That's the code word, right? That's the password. That's the thing that, you know, that's what you get baptized with. That's, that's how you step in, right? But is the gospel real to you? Like, is it the right answer or is it the real answer? Is it, is it the preacher's answer or is it your answer? Is the gospel real to you? I remember the first time the gospel became real to me. It was like five years after I began following Jesus. I used to picture Jesus 
he'd walk around with me since I was 18 years old. I didn't grow up in a Christian household, and so nobody taught me any different. That was the best thing that I had, and I would just picture him. I'd picture his face. I'd picture his, I still do sometimes when I pray. Picture his uh, expression, picture his tone, and I used to follow Jesus kind of by myself. With Jesus by my side, I'd imagine him in the, in the driver's seat. Bob, Bob, uh, Bob Foose, where's my Diet Coke? Bob Foose, <clears throat> summer 2004, Campus Crusade for Christ, he brought his Diet Coke out like this, and I was behind on my, on my sermon illustration today, so I didn't get it done. But he, uh, he poured a big old glass of Diet Coke. He says, this, this, this Coke, for the uh, purpose of this sermon, is uh, Jesus Christ. And then he took a little R2-D2, and he took the R2-D2 in the cup, and he, he just plunked it. He just dropped it right there in that cup, and it totally disappeared. And he says, and that's you in Jesus Christ. He says, Jesus is not just around you, he's in you. And when the Father looks at you, he can't see anything but Jesus. And so when he sees you, the only beginning stem of any sentence that he ever says to you is, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. There's a difference between knowing that God is around you and knowing that God is inside of you. Two separate things. And that, that marked a landmark a shift for my walk in Jesus uh, from what I would be call, call the if gospel to the because gospel. Everybody say if. The if gospel is the gospel of the world. The if gospel is the prosperity gospel. The if gospel is the legalist gospel. The if gospel is the principled gospel, but it's not the gospel of Jesus. The if gospel says that if I do X, then I will get Y. That's what the if gospel is, and it's the sermon that we're continually surrounded with daily, but that is not the sermon of Jesus Christ, and that is not the sermon of salt and light. The sermon of salt and light is not preaching if, but because... Because he loved me, because he died for me, because he came for me, because he rose for me, because he put his spirit inside of me, because he's coming back for me, that I live. Not if, but because, because, because. And so, my little walk around, tone of voice, Jesus, developed, it matured. It, was, it went from, a, he forgives me, you know, if I ask the right way and when I ask the right way, he can be nice to me. He loves me some days, but then he loves me not some days. It kind of depends on what psalm I'm reading. If David seems sad, then maybe I should be sad. Or if David seems angry, maybe I should be angry. Like this is the kind of he loves me, he loves me not gospel. But that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel of Jesus Christ says he's not only around you, but he's inside of you. And he's surrounded you. And you wear him and you smell like him. And the only sentence he begins his dialogue with you is, this is my beloved son and this is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Do you walk in the if gospel or do you walk in the because gospel? Think back with me. When did the gospel become real to you? The beginning segment of our series uh, is about words. Everybody say words. There are, there are three things, I think, that would make up a life. That would be areas of influence for the gospel to invade. Not just our words, our ways, our ethos, our rhythms, our patterns. Not just the things that we say we want to do, but the things that we actually do. The things that just naturally flow out of us. That would be our ways. Our words are the things that we say, our dialect, our tone, what we say, our ways is what we do continually, but we'd have to go out of our way to distinguish a work. To confront racial injustice, you would have to go out of your way. You'd have to be inconvenienced, right? To go and make a disciple, you'd have to cross the street. You'd have to go out of your way, and so it's not just the words and the ways, but there is risk involved and faith involved and calling involved, and so there must be works. So those are our three focus words for the whole summer, but this is what we're talking about today is words. Words are important. Words create worlds. As a matter of fact, one of the main jobs of Adam in the garden was to use his words to name the animals because naming something is claiming authority over it. You can watch the news today and notice that the words are creating a war over the issues that we're seeing, are they not? There is a war of narratives, is there not? 
Whoever has the microphone, whoever gets to decide what that is called, is the one who controls the narrative and therefore acts as the authority in that issue. And so words, words are the power of life and death. They're in the tongue. And words are critical and important to the way that we speak to ourselves and others. So the gospel is about ways and is about works, but it is also about words. And words are so important. Words are so important because words carry meaning. To the same way that a building is built with numbers, our lives are built with words. Words are what define things and capture emotions. The same way that we would want the measurements of the scaffolding and the infrastructure and the foundation of these buildings to be right, how much more would we want our lives to be built on the words of the gospel of Jesus Christ? It would be critical that we would take captive our language and our words because words are like the, the little, remember the Dewey Decimal System? You go into the uh, downtown library right now and there's whatever, umpteen hundred thousand books. And the librarian could find any book that you want, any book that you want in the matter of a couple clicks in a second. You know why? Because the thing is alphabetized and it's organized. And when we are low and when we are forgetful and when we are sad and when we are angry and sorrowful, may we have words to preach to ourselves. May we remember the words that he said, right? That, that the cross has offered peace to the world, that he desires that all men would be saved, that he gave himself as a ransom for many. We need these words. We need to meditate on these words. And I think sometimes we think we graduate from this, but I could not recommend more highly as I think about this concept of words that we do memorize the scripture, even if we don't necessarily know what they mean yet, that they, they would come upon us and teach us what they mean when the event comes to us, that we would have the words and the language to preach the, preach the gospel to us. And this is the importance of words. And so, um, the gospel. The gospel is of uttermost importance, and that's what we'll look at in, in Corinthians 13 in a moment. But if you're with me in, in, in Genesis, Genesis 1, I just want to preach the gospel to us this morning. It is a joy to preach the gospel. The gospel is the only hope. As a matter of fact, that anything else less than the gospel that would narrate our world might look good, but it's actually poison. Any parenting that doesn't have the gospel in it is poison. It's probably worse than overtly countering or, or, or antagonizing the gospel. Like a, a parenting style that looks like the gospel but isn't truly the gospel is actually more harmful than helpful. Leadership without the gospel, harmful. Race relations without the gospel, harmful. Politics without the gospel, harmful. The gospel is the only hope, the only hope that we have. May our words form meaning and narration around our lives around the gospel. Genesis 1, verses uh, 31 through chapter 2. Four movements of the gospel, and actually let's get the little creative uh, chalkboard up there. There are four major movements of the gospel, which by the way, Tim Keller, bright guy, we should listen to him, the gospel is not just the ABCs of life, it is the A through Z of life. Great trick would be that we could just pass the gospel as though it's first base. He says, no, the, the gospel is, is not just the foundation, it's the infrastructure of everything that we do. The gospel is the creation, and everybody has a creation story. That is what we think is utopia, what we think is the ideal. Do we have God's ideal or, or ours? Then there's the fall. What is wrong with the world? What makes it Broken? Everybody understands it's broken. It's actually the easiest doctrine to prove. Out of all of these is the brokenness of the world. We all know without any kind of, with general revelation, that something ain't right. Redemption, what Jesus brings, and finally restoration. And here's the, here's the most important thing about this. An abbreviated gospel, and like a truncated version of what you see on that screen, will always lead to an abbreviated and truncated life with God here on this earth and beyond. If we don't understand all of him and give all of us to all of that, then we miss something. 
and it will be harmful. It will be very, very harmful. So this is what Genesis 1 says. I'll read it right off the screen. And it says, uh, says this. It says, God saw, after he created everything, all that he had made, and he, was, he said it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And it says, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array, and by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all of his work. God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because he rested on it, and from that, all of the work of creating that he had done. He rested from all the creating he had done. Now the serpent, oh, that's the next slide. Go back to the last one. It says that he calls it holy, he blesses the seventh day, and he says he sits back and he rests in all that he had done. The resting here that's going on in Genesis 2 uh, one and two, is not lazy boy resting, it's throne resting. You know the difference between that? So like, it says that God has created the world and he's called it good and there was one moment for a second when women wasn't there and then he said that wasn't good and then he fixed it, right? And he said it was good. And then it says he sits back and he rests and he calls it holy, which means, which means complete and set apart and good. It was everything that he intended to be. And when he sits back, he's not sitting back because he's tired, he's sitting back because it's complete. It's like when uh, Captain Picard on Star Trek sits back and says, engage. It's a picture of a king over his kingdom. It's a picture of me when I get done mowing the grass and all the little trimmings all done and the sprinkler system comes on and I sit in my, my lawn chair and I just admire the work that I've done. It represents fullness, shalom, and kingdom. It is, it is the picture of a king sitting over a kingdom. Two observations about this. Two observations about creation that are important. Number one, at the fullness of creation, when God has called it complete and holy, the apex of the creation is clearly him. He is at the center of creation. He is at the center of what we call the utmost of what this creation, created order could be. Okay? So the question, the follow-up question becomes, if my gospel has anything else except him at the center, if my gospel is this utopic wonderland where I'm running around and get all the Maseratis and the, and the, and the attention that I want and all my problems are gone and and, and everything else is just working out. But it does not have him at the center of the great cathedral of creation where all of creation is bowing down and lifting up his name umpteenth times to the volume and passion that we lifted his name up today. Then that is not the gospel. That is not the picture. He's, that is not what he's saving us into. He is saving us into nothing more and nothing less than that picture right there, the restoration of Eden with him at the center. Number two, number two. If our gospel to ourselves and others starts with this phrase, you are an abomination, you have skipped half of the movie. The whole story begins on chapter one, where he's at the center, and we are not obstacles and enemies, we are participants. We are gardeners for his glory. So if we're headed anywhere else but that Garden of Eden, we are not listening to the gospel. This is, this is the mandate that he set his, his feet on his, on his throne and called it complete, and called it holy, and declared that's, what, that's the dictionary we're going to use for what this thing is supposed to be. It's not going to be my version, or your version, or her version, or their version. It's his version. He is high and lifted up. It's a picture of him on the throne. All of creation lifts up praise to him and, and gathers around him for eternity. This is heaven. And if you want that, then that's what, you, that's what, that's what we're headed towards. But if that's not what you want, then you're not going to like heaven. That's, that's exactly what the gospel is leading us to. Number two, the second movement in the gospel story, is the fall. Genesis 3, I'll read it off the screen. It says this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say this? You must not eat from any tree in the garden. Next slide. 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. Next slide. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took from it and ate it, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. When Adam and Eve took the fruit, they were redefining good and evil on their own terms. I remember a youth group kid asked me one time, like, how come he ate the fruit and he didn't just drop dead on the spot? And I said, well, he did. It's a lot like if I plucked a leaf off the the tree out there, you know, like I did at Easter and showed it to you, like, it's green, but it's categorically dead. It's only dead and dying. And that is what the world is doing. We're not supposed to be dying even at 86 years old, but that is a result of the sin of, of separation from God. But here's the thing. The chapter goes on to describe the depth and the width of sin. It's so much more dark and evil and broken than we thought, even just reading the first couple of verses there. Because sin was not only individual, but it was systemic. It was corporate. Like it went from Cain killing his brother Abel to Cain building a city of his own glory where he subjugated women and took the place of God instead of God you know, himself and created a government of iniquity. And so it's not only, it's not only deep, the impact, impact of sin, but it's wide. And it's not only that we become victims of sin, but we become villains. Remember how God talks to, to, to Cain? He says, uh, don't do this, Cain. He says, there is, a, there is a serpent who is trying to get you. He wants to rule over you, and, you will ha- and he will have you. Unless you resist it, you must rule over it. And so Cain is a victim, but he's also a villain of sin. Those are two different problems that we live with in the world. And so here's the deal. It is not popular to talk about whether you say the wrath of God or hell, or judgment. The reality is that hell and the result and the consequence of sin is not only the allowance to be separate from God, but the active enforcement of judgment on people that rebel against God. That is the gospel. That is the, those two things have to be intact there. That, that, that death and, and judgment and wrath, okay, is not only the passive allowance of people to turn their back on God, but the active right and just judgment on people. Okay, so let's talk through this for a second. We saw an eight-minute video clip that will change our nation forever. And nobody that saw that clip wants that police officer back on the street with a badge on, right? Right or left, Republican or Democrat, nobody wants that guy without justice, right? Here's the trick, though. Here's the trick. All justice requires judgment. And we live in a world where we want justice, but we don't know what to do with judgment. That guy, George Floyd, does not get his justice, right, if that police officer doesn't get judgment. Here's the the catch. Here's the catch. Here's where it gets uncomfortable. Because we want to live in a world where we get justice and someone else gets judgment. But justice to somebody else probably means justice to me or judgment to me. Okay, so let me give you an example of that. So I'm on Facebook the other day. Ryan Thomas, gentle giant, seven foot tall at like eighth grade. He set a screen on me on a high pick and roll in a basketball game one time. It was like he sent me to the chiropractor. 
my back cracked like a xylophoam straight up my vertebrae all the way to my neck, and I fell down. He was twice my weight. Good job, Ollie. Picked me up, patted me on the butt, got going. I'm scrolling through. He's been sharing areas of racism that he's experienced from his life, from the time he was a little boy until he grew up. He makes a comment about a basketball game in 1999 where apparently um, at halftime he came in and there was a swastika sign that somebody had written on the, on the locker room of the girls' JV locker room, which is what happens when you're a high school basketball player. You end up in the girls' locker room all the time. Swastika on the thing. We come back. We win the game by like a buzzer beater. It's all white school. Our team is mainly black. Coach tells him, we got to go. At the end of it, we get in the locker room. He says, we got no time to celebrate. They're mad. We got to go out there. He's like, hashtag whatever, stories of my youth. Okay, and he shares these stories. Okay, so here's what's alarming about that. I think we're realizing that racism is a systemic issue, and we're realizing it's deeper and wider than we thought. It probably needs more attention and concern and active engagement than we thought. And I hope we're learning this. I think we're learning this. I think this is what we're sort of trying to understand and grapple with. Okay, but here's what here's what alarms me about that that story, is that I was in that room and I had no idea it happened. I was completely blind. I was completely blind to the mark on the locker room. I was completely blind to the dynamic of race. I was completely blind to his trite. I was completely blind to either my my opportunity to act and do something right, as well as my guilt for for not engaging and caring about my brother as much as I do about myself. And I've been a teacher, right? Before this, I was a teacher for seven years, and there's not a day goes by. You know, Jesus says that when you whisper idiot to somebody, it's like you're killing them. It's associated with murder in his mind. Remember, he sits down, he says, if you have lust in your eyes, you've already helped sex trafficking. It's already happened, okay? So we think that God is this IRS agent who's auditing our life, trying to fine-tune little things. That's not what it is. The reality is, is we are blatantly, overtly hurting each other more than we know. We are speaking and acting and being passive and being aggressive and affecting people's destiny more than we know. God is not an OCD auditor. He is seeing things clearly that we're blind of. And we want justice, but we don't want the judgment. And there's 7 billion people in this world, and not all of them can be judged. And I don't want to be judged by the 600 followers I have on Facebook. And if I were to judge the world, I would probably judge inaccurately against the 600 people that I'm friends with. Because my eyes aren't the clearest things. The Bible says that we like to make what is right in our own eyes. So that's the reality. Either we live in a life where George Floyd gets justice and there's judgment in it, or we live in a life where that guy goes scot-free. Which one do we want? This is how we have to grapple with the reality of the judgment of sin. We're blind to it, and we're not just victims. We are villains and perpetrators. Sin is not just around us. It is in us. And it's not just the world's problem. It is our problem. We are broken. We are flawed, and unfortunately, we're the last ones to see it. So this is what the gospel is saying. Who's ready for some good news? You got to get the bad news, right? You can't preach the good news without the, or the good news without the bad news. Everybody turn with me in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, short passage, but something that I think can equip us well. Now, brother, says Paul, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand by the gospel 
by the gospel, not the gospel of just do it or think different, not the gospel of try harder or move slower or not the gospel of good vibes only or not the gospel of exercise or the gospel of diet, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel that I preach to you, the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, pass on to you as it was of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared more than 500 brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and the other apostles as well. Do you all have that dry erase board that I sent? I sent it late in the email. If we don't understand the fullness of the gospel, we will miss the fullness of Jesus in our life. An abbreviated gospel is an abbreviated experience with Jesus Christ. And the gospel is this. I've got the quote here, um, if we can find the picture as well. But the quote is this. The gospel is the good news that Jesus is redeeming all of me and all of this through repentance and believing in him. That's what the gospel is. It's not just me getting to heaven. It is us getting back to the garden. That's the gospel message. Take it or leave it. Either all of it or none of it. We will either accept all the gospel or none of the gospel. And so, and so um, the language here in 1 Corinthians 15 in the language of Jesus is actually a little tongue-in-cheek, okay? Because those words, salvation and faith and believe and stand, those are not just Jesus' words. Those are Caesar's words. Those are Caesar's words. It would be as though Jesus came, in ta- came into town or Paul came to town with a purple trucker hat that said, make America kingdom again. That's exactly what's just happened. Because a Roman citizen, after it had taken over a new territory, had that time owned 23% of the world, because this is during the Pax Romana, the time of Roman peace, was promising a gospel. That's what it was called, a gospel, a good news, a, a kind of kingdom that would come. And that Caesar was saying, um, or the, the, the messenger that was coming to speak on behalf of Caesar was saying, good news, the gospel of Caesar is here, and he has conquered this territory, uh, believe it, and you'll be saved by Caesar because Caesar is Lord. And Jesus comes in with that trucker hat and he says, no, I'm Lord. And we're making, we're making this, this place like heaven again. That's what we're doing. That's what the kingdom of heaven is all about. This is the full gospel. We take it or leave it. It's all of it or none of it. And so let me read the gospel to you as I've understood it with these arrows. And, and um, this will kind of be our, our, our take-home place here. But this is the gospel. Does that have the arrows? There it is. You're a victim and you're a villain. You have sin outside of you and inside of you. It's personal and it's systemic. It's broken and you can't beat it. And there's nothing that can fix it. And we need to head back to the garden, not just for one person to get out of this place. We need this place restored the way it was intended to be. This is not a, this is not a, a, a bad world that God wants to destroy. This is a good world made bad that is broken and needs to be redeemed. And the kingdom of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, is Jesus has come to redeem it. And this is, this is the gospel, that Jesus came for us. He came for you. He did not, uh, he did not, he was not repelled by your sin, but came to this earth to be kissed by Jesus, betrayed by Judas, betrayed by men, and scorned and spit upon. This is who he is. Like, take it or leave it, like it or not, this is the truth. It's not good advice, it's good news. He came for you. He put on flesh for you, and he walked here for 33 years on this earth, a perfect life, but tempted and tried so that you would understand and that he would understand what it's like 
to, to walk through sickness and what it's like to walk through brokenness and what it's like to have a friend betray you and what it's like to be, to be hurt and cursed and what it's like to be tired and what it's like to be confused and what it's like to, to not know the answer. Like he, 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 put on, he put on flesh and he became fully man and he walked this thing out so he could show us what life would look like and so he can empathize with everything that we have. And then he died. And at that cross, the wrath of God was satisfied upon Jesus. Jesus took the punishment that we deserved and... He put sin on the cross, emptying it of its powers, and he stepped on the, on, the, on, the, uh, on the serpent, our enemy, making us no longer a villain by way of identity and no longer a victim. We are powerful in the name of Jesus Christ, and he died for us. And so what is true of Jesus is now true of me. Jesus was treated like me so I could be treated like him. And now everything that is true of Jesus is true of me, and the only way that the Father talks to me is the way that he, he talks to the Father. The only way he looks at me is through the Diet Coke of the gospel. That's how he sees me. That's how, that's who I am. But he didn't stop there. He resurrected. He conquered death. That death would no longer be part of the human experience of the new creation. That we would live eternally and abundantly with him forever. This is the full gospel. He came for us. He lived for us. He died for us. He raised for us. He ascended for us. What is the ascension? The ascension is saying the work is finished. And so any moment that I'm thinking to myself, I wonder if I need to do a little bit more, if somebody needs to do a little bit more, if something needs to change, he's going upwards in that arrow. He's saying, no, if the work needed to get done, it's already done because I'm seated at the right hand of the Father. It's already established and there's nothing that be done or undone about it. It's already done in my name. This is what we need to preach to ourselves and others, that he sent his Holy Spirit to continue his life here on this earth. Greater works will you do because the Holy Spirit is within you. It's better that I go because the Holy Spirit will indwell in you and you will continue my redemption life into the new creation until he's coming back for you. And he's coming back for you. And when he comes back, all rights will be made, or all wrongs will be made right. Everything on this earth will be put back together again in that Eden reality. That's the gospel. Take it or leave it. That is the good news. Not good advice not good wisdom, that is the good news. And this is where we live in the fourth chapter of the new creation. Paul compares it to an acorn and an oak tree. As much as an acorn has transformed to be a different kind of category of species, so it is that we have been transformed to be a new creation in him. We are no longer um, the old creation, we are part of the new creation. The old man is gone and the new has come. I'm not, I'm not just a sinner who sometimes does good things, I'm a saint, I'm a saint, I'm a saint, I'm a son, I'm a daughter who sometimes reverts back to an old nature, but day by day, glory by glory, I'm being moved into the new creation that we would be the first taste and the first fruit of what that kingdom's about to be like through salt and life, salt and light, salt and light. And that's the gospel, that's the whole gospel. That is the good news, not of Caesar, but of Jesus, that he has come, that he is the king, that he is the savior, and we could receive it by believing, by just trusting and believing his kingdom come and his will be done. Is that good news? I just want to close up. Um, I'll have uh, Timothy up here um, to kind of transition into worship. The intentional question says, if you're surrounded by the gospel, not of Jesus, but of the world, do you know how to preach the gospel of Jesus? You're, you're hearing messages all the time. And unless they're coming through, through the spirit and through the truth of Jesus, they are not the gospel. They are not the good news of the kingdom. And so the gospel of the world comes to us. The, the if gospel comes to us in three different categories as I've looked at it. It comes to us in the form of lies. It comes to us in the form of accusations. And it comes to us in the form of temptations. And so if you hear, this is the intentional question, like if this is the thought that you would put language to, words create worlds, 
and, and language is culture. If this is the language that is developing the culture of your mind, you need the gospel. In every area of life, we don't graduate from the ABCs of the gospel. We live in the language and the alphabet of the gospel from birth until uh, resurrection and kingdom come. This is where we live. We do not live in these places. God doesn't really love you. This is the, this is the gospel of the world. God is here to keep joy from you. God has plenty of people to worry about. A lot of people that are really suffering, not first world problems. And so he's too busy and he's not around. He's a deist at best. He set the clock, he's wound it up and now he's backed off and allowed it to just play its part. He's not involved. He didn't come for you. He didn't live for you. He didn't die for you. He didn't raise for you. He didn't ascend. His work isn't complete. Comes in the form of accusations. Maybe you've heard this before. You always do that. You'll never not do that, will you? It's just who you are. You blew it again and you'll blow it again. You shouldn't be surprised because you're a loser and you're a hypocrite. You're not a son. And God doesn't look at you like he looked at Jesus. He's not pleased with you. You're a fake. The gospel of the world, the because gospel hits you with temptations. Have you heard any temptations today or last week? You deserve that. You worked really hard. It'll take your troubles away. And you're no really good without it anyways. I mean, you're really helping people by um, surrendering to this substance. This will make you powerful. This will make you feel desired. This will make you aroused. You need to get this thing. And if you do, then everything else will get better. And of course, we can only export with the import. And so the words that come into our mind and heart about others is go ahead and say it. You know it's true. You know everybody else is thinking about it. This is for their own good. Give them a little tough love. Have you heard counterfeits of the gospel? Have you heard things that twist a little bit towards the gospel, but they're not the full thing? They're not that he came for you, that he lived for you, that he died for you, that he raised for you, that he ascended for you. You'll look better if you say that about them. If you share that with this person, it'll actually build an intimacy because you'll know that they, that you trust them. That's how you can communicate, by gossiping in that way. They hurt you, you should pay. You should pay. I'm sure that you could list a whole nother laundry list. These are just things that I think of sometimes. But it's not the gospel, not the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom is that he came for you, that he lived for you, that he died for you. Is that the language that is in your mind? Is that the culture and the environment that he died for you? That what is true of Jesus is now true of you. And he only looks at you with the beginning sentence. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Do we know the gospel and we know how to preach it to our counterfeits? That he's sending these done working and there's nothing else that we can do to change him. There's nothing we can do to make him love us anymore or nothing we can do to make him love us any less because we live in the because reality. Because he died for us. Because he's king and not Caesar. Because he's complete. Because he's put his spirit inside of us. We can live free. We can live as sons and daughters marching on into the new creation where all things are restored to the garden space again. That he put his spirit in you. Do you preach the gospel to yourself and others? That he is coming back for you. Do you preach the gospel? to yourself and others or just give good advice. I want to invite you to stand and um, I just want us to, to worship um, in light of these things. Uh, let me lead us in prayer and uh, we'll close our time in worship this morning. But Lord Jesus, we just say that your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
and may it start in me. May you cultivate in me a gospel reality that what is here and what I see and what we know is fading away and passing away. And the things that have to do with bitterness and greed and slander and gossip and the things that have to do with racism and the things that have to do with elitism and the things that have to do with pride, those things are passing away. They are, they're the old thing that are passing away. And Lord, that you would cultivate a gospel narrative in me. And Lord, that it would flow out to my neighbors, that there would be a salt and light about me that many, many, many would hear the gospel. Many need to hear the good news. There are so many, so many that need to hear this good news that you came that you came for us, and not only that you came, but you stayed, that you lived, that you walked this earth and suffered many persecutions so that you could empathize with all things and be a great high priest on our behalf, that you died for us, that you were the great substitute and the great conqueror for our enemies, that you, that you emptied the tomb and emptied uh, death from life and that you ascended to finish your work, that you put your Holy Spirit in us and that you're coming back for us. This is the gospel and we receive it and that many would receive it and find faith. Um, and life and freedom in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.